0: Dr. Comfort. Thank you, Pastor. Before we dismiss the children, I'd like to find out about the high school. How many of you are freshmen? Raise your hand, please. Freshmen? All right. How many of you are sophomores? Raise your hand. All right. You know that's Brother Beale's favorite year. Three of the happiest years of his life he spent as a sophomore. By the way, here's the sophomoreic philosophy, listen. The more you study, the more you know. The more you know, the more you forget. The more you forget, the less you know. So why study, is that it? All right, how about juniors? Where are the juniors? Raise your hand. All right, and the seniors, seniors. Thank you young people for coming. Let me say that Brother Beal has had an unexpected situation arise, and he will not be preaching on Thursday night, nor in the Thursday chapel, but I will be preaching Thursday night, and that night is family night. My desire is to preach an evangelistic message to get some uh, of your unsaved relatives saved. And the family with the largest number of relatives plus invited guests or adopted family will get this Henry Morris Study Bible, a tremendous study Bible. All right, let's stand please. Everybody's standing. Gonna ask all the children, fourth grade on down to four years old to follow my wife and uh, brother Bill, for the children's Bible hour. Now, let me give you a challenge. Take your Bible and turn to Song of Solomon, chapter eight. Let me help you find Song of Solomon. If you'll go to Psalms and then go toward Matthew, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. If you have a problem finding that, don't be embarrassed. I know a lot of preachers that have to look in the index to find Song of Solomon. All right, Song of Solomon. Chapter 8. Notice, please, verses 6 through 8. It said, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is as strong as death and jealousy as cruel as a grave. The colds are over the coals of fire which hath the most vehement flame. Many daughters cannot quench love neither can floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love it would be utterly condemned. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Song of Solomon is one of the most beautiful of stories in the entire Bible. There are two primarily interpretations to this book. One is that this Shulamite maid is in love with a shepherd boy, and uh, there's nothing that can divert her. She is sold on this shepherd boy, and in the end, it turns out to be King Solomon. But there is another interpretation She is in love with a shepherd boy, and even King Solomon tries to steal her love away from this shepherd boy, but regardless of whether a person is a king or not, she is in love with her shepherd boy. I personally take that second interpretation. However, uh, one thing is clear about this book that this pictures the love of Jesus Christ for his bride or the church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, Solomon is telling us in these two verses, three verses, that love is the strongest force in the entire universe. And if a man is a millionaire and he tries to buy love, his money would be utterly condemned because you cannot buy true love. I heard the story about a lady who was married to a man with whom she was infatuated. She thought she was in love when she married him, but it was nothing but infatuation. So as time went on in her marriage, she realized that it was not real love. Her husband had set down for her some rigid rules to follow, such as get up at five o'clock in the morning, get breakfast on the table at six, wait on him hand and foot, etc., etc. Some of you ladies know about those rules, don't you? But the day came when her marriage became a drudgery. She longed to see the sunset and she hated to see the sunrise. In the course of time, her husband died and she didn't shed very many tears over it. But a while after her husband died, she started dating a man that she had known for years. And it seemed to be so different And after they had been seeing each other for quite a while, one day he popped the inevitable question and she accepted his proposal and they were happily married. Life was so different than living with her first husband. when she would get up in the morning and her husband would get off to go to work, she'd put her arms around him and say, honey, hurry home, I'm gonna miss you so much. And as she would do her housework, her eyes and her heart was on that walkway at 4.30 when he would walk down the walkway. And she would run out to meet him, wrap her arms around his neck, hug him and kiss him and tell him how much she loved him and missed him. Well, one day as she was doing her house cleaning, she came upon the set of rules that her first husband had set down for her to follow. And she read them. Get up at five o'clock in the morning. Get breakfast on the table at six. Wait on him hand and foot, etc., etc. And she sat down and she had a good laugh. You know why? She was doing the same thing for this husband that she did for the first husband, but she didn't realize it. What was the difference? Two words true love. Tonight, I'm speaking on the subject what is true love? Now, some of you young people think you're in love, and it's only puppy love. Now, I know, I know it's real to the puppy, I know that, but you better be careful because puppy love leads to a dog's life. We're going to find out tonight what is true love. Would you take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. There are three Greek words in the New Testament that are translated love. The first word is the word E-R-O-S eros. And that is not love, that is lust. That's all Hollywood knows about. The second word is the word phileo. And that's the same word from which we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's a fondness or a brotherly love. But the third word is the word agape. And that is a divine love that comes down from God. Now, young people, listen. An unsaved person can experience the lust or the eros. He can experience the brotherly love but he is totally incapable of experiencing the divine love that comes down from God. And that's why we tell you young people, don't date unsaved people, because you can be married to them for years and years and they can never have that agape love until they get saved. I want us to notice some things about real true love. Number one, true love is discipline. Will you notice, please, Matthew 27, verses 35 through 44. Notice, please. It says, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroyest the temple in three days, save thyself, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with scribes and elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. All right, look this way. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know that it was not those 10-inch spikes that kept Jesus on the cross that day. As a matter of fact, there was not a spike in the world large enough to keep him on the cross. Now, early in the morning, the chief priests and elders come to the garden to apprehend Jesus Christ. And Peter thought he had to defend the Son of God. So he took out a sword, and he cut off the high priest's servant's ear, Malchus. And Jesus said, Peter, put up your sword. In Matthew 26, 53, he said, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will give me 12 legions of angels to rescue him? Now, think of that. Do you know what legion was? It could have been as many as 6,000 in the Roman army. And so Jesus said, Peter, you don't have to defend me. All I've got to do is say the word and 72,000 angels would come down and rescue me. I wonder what 72,000 angels could have done. Folks, I read in Isaiah chapter 37 that one angel in one night slew 185,000 Assyrians. One angel in one night. I wonder what seven two thousand angels could have done, and many times Jesus said, "Mine hour is not yet come." Mine hour is not yet come, but I believe the turning point came in John chapter ten and verse eleven. He said, "I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep." John ten and verse eighteen: No man taketh it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up again. And that day when he was facing Calvary, in John chapter 12 and verse 27, he said this, now is my soul trouble and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I were born to live. Are you listening in the balcony? Jesus was born to die. As he lay in that manger, the shadow of the cross hovered over the manger. He walked the dusty roads of Galilee, opening blind eyes and stopping deaf ears, but it was all coincidental to going to an old rugged cross. And when he was facing the cross, he said, this is the very reason for which I was born. This is the reason why all creation exists. And ladies and gentlemen, it was not those 10 inch spikes that kept him on the cross. It was a four letter word, L-O-V-E. And when Jesus died on the cross, In essence, he said this, I love, therefore I will not come down from the cross. True love is discipline. A young man comes to his girlfriend and he says, honey, I love you so much we've got to do it. I want to say that is not love, that is lust. And true love will say, honey, I love you, therefore we must not. True love is discipline. Now think of this, folks, everything in this universe is governed by laws and rules. You get an automobile. If you don't go by the manual, your warranty isn't worth the paper it's written on. You get an appliance. If you don't go by the direction, you'll not get maximum efficiency from that appliance. So everything in this universe is covered by laws and rules. Isn't it logical if that is true? Then God should set down some rules in this matter of true love. And he did, he did. I want you ladies and gentlemen to remember this. This rule affects everybody in this building, whether you are a child or you are in middle age or old age. Exodus 20 and verse 14, are you listening? Thou shall not commit adultery. Hey, adultery is as wrong a day as it was when Moses penned the law. And what God condemned, condemned in the day of Christ, he doesn't condone in 2021. And my friend, if you flaunt God's rules of love, you're gonna pay in three ways. Number one, you're gonna pay in your marriage. Hebrews 13 and verse four, for marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. I was a member of a church in West Virginia for quite a while, my wife's from West Virginia and uh, we had a young lady come to our church. My pastor told me about her. She had been going to a Methodist church and she got involved in adultery and her conscience was stinging her. So she came to her Methodist preacher and she said, preacher, I need some help. She said, I got involved in adultery and I know it's wrong and can you help me? You know what the Methodist preacher said? He said, young lady, Did it hurt you? Did it hurt the man with whom you had adultery? He said, if it didn't hurt either one of you, who is to say it is wrong? Now I wanna say hell is not going to be hot enough for a preacher that would tell a young lady that. Hell is not going to be hot enough for this crowd of professors that get in the classroom and say marriage is out of date and you just live with a woman as long as you want to, when you get tired, you go on to somebody else. Hell's not gonna be hot enough for that crowd. Marriage is honorable and all in the bed undefiled. I read a letter years ago to Abigail Van Buren, please excuse me, and the letter emphasized this. He said, dear Abby, he said, I married a sweet, pure, virtuous woman. She was as pure as any flower that ever bloomed in the springtime. He said, I wish I could say the same about my own morals, because before I got saved, I ran around with dirty girls who thought that sex was a plaything. I thought the same thing. He said, even though I am married to a sweet, pure, virtuous woman, I still cannot enjoy a normal relationship in marriage because of the way I played loose. Now folks, I'm afraid that that probably could be repeated in this congregation. Somebody says, I just can't enjoy a normal relationship in marriage. The reason is you flaunted God's rules before you got married. So number one, you uh, you pay in your marriage. Number two, you pay in your Body, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 13, for the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4, for this is the will of God concerning you, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. What know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have a God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Hey, you flaunt God's rules of love, you pay in your body. Do you realize that 50 years ago, there were only two sexually transmitted diseases? Now today, there are over 30 sexually transmitted diseases. Why? You pay in your body. I was preaching in Tennessee and a young lady came to me and she said, Brother Comfort, I am working in a home for mentally deranged children. And she said, I have noticed something very unusual. She said, nine out of 10 children in our home for mentally deranged children, are the products of unwed mothers. She said, isn't that a coincidence? I said, no ma'am. 1 Corinthians three seventeen: if any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy, for the temple of God is holy which temple ye are. When our second baby, Rebecca, was born, I took my wife to the hospital early in the morning. This was in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And there was a gang of young people from a denominational college sitting in that waiting room. And I wondered what was going on. And after a while, I heard some screams and cries from the labor room it wasn't my wife, but it was a, a teenage girl. and. Uh, So somebody told me the story. This young lady got involved in immorality, was expecting a baby. The hospital had to call the parents to get their permission to take the girl in and uh, have the baby born. And before the baby was born, the girl did not want, she did not want the baby. So she took some drugs that would kill the baby when it was born. And ladies and gentlemen, the baby was born dead. When that girl stands before God, she will not only be an adulteress, she will be a cold blooded murderer. I wanna say every judge that has voted to legalize killing babies is going to be a cold blooded murderer when he stands before God. You flaunt God's rules of love, you pay in your marriage. Number two, you pay in your body. Number three, you pay in your conscience. Here's an interesting verse. Proverbs 6, 31 and 32. It says, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Folks, do you know what that means? It is the only sin in the Bible that is mentioned that way. It's not talking about the sin of murder. It's not talking about the sin of lying and cheating and stealing. It's talking about adultery. And you know what it means? If you commit adultery, in Florida, and you move to California, and you live there the rest of your life, you will be wounded in your conscience the rest of your life. Several years ago, when I was still President of Ambassador, a young man was brought in who was a student after the summer break, and his RA was with him. The boy was weeping. And I said, young man, what's your problem? How can I help you? He said, Brother Comfort, I think I'm disqualified from being a preacher. I said, what do you mean? He said, this summer I lost my purity. By the way, here's something that is the parents' fault. That boy committed adultery with a girl in her bedroom. He had no business being in her bedroom. But anyway, he was weeping. And he said, I've lost my purity. I guess I'm disqualified from being a preacher. I said, no, no. I said, you're not disqualified from being a preacher, but I'll tell you what you're disqualified from. You're disqualified from standing before a group of young people like this and saying, kids, keep your bodies pure. I've lived all these years and never committed adultery. I can stand up before these crowd of young people and say, in 83 years, I've never committed adultery. Keep your body pure. Now that has some weight to it, but I said you forfeited the right to ever be able to say that. I remember many years ago, I was preaching in New York state. And as I was preaching, there was a girl on the second row that started weeping. She wept the whole time I was preaching. I thought she didn't like my preaching, I didn't know. But after the service was over, she came to me and she said, Brother Comfort, she said, as a 13 year old girl, I was sold into prostitution. She said, today my mom and dad are in jail for selling a minor into prostitution. She said, for three years I lived like that. She said, you know what? The first thing I think about when I get up in the morning is how I lived those three years. The last thing I think about at night is how I lived those three years. Young people, it's a wonderful thing to be able to stand at the altar and look at that bride-to-be and say, I've never committed adultery. Keep your body pure. Number one, true love is discipline. All right, take your Bible, please, and turn to Luke chapter 23. Number two, true love is forgiving. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. It says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. Now look this way. Hey, there are some people who think that the only person who ever died on the cross was Jesus Christ. No, many people died on the cross. Diocletian, the wicked Roman emperor, in one day, he put a thousand Christians on the cross. And I'm not saying nobody ever died on the cross, but I'm saying nobody ever died on the cross like Jesus did. You see, whenever a person died on the cross, he usually died cursing God or cursing man, cursing those who put him on the cross, but not Jesus. Somehow in my mind, I can see Michael and Gabriel as they're standing at the embattlements of heaven. And Michael says to Gabriel, let's listen. Jesus is going to call us down to take him off the cross. And all of a sudden, the lips of Jesus began to move. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Now, this is interesting. In the Greek language, the verb is in the continuous tense. You know what that means? He was continually saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. I believe as they crowned him with thorns, he may have said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. As they pounded the spikes in his hands, he may have said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. As they plucked down his beard, he may have said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. True love is forgiven. Now, Christians, listen. I've been in this thing 60 years, And I am convinced that the main reason we are not seeing revival in our fundamental Baptist churches is because of an unforgiving spirit. Somebody said, well, if you knew how they treated me, you'd know I have every right in the world to be bitter. And I ask you, has anybody ever driven nails in your hands? Has anybody ever shoved a sword in your side like they did Jesus? Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, and he said, "Uh, uh, Jesus, uh, the Jewish rabbi said, 'I'll forgive my brother three times. But he said, I'm a good Christian. I'm gonna forgive him seven times, aren't I a good Christian? And Jesus said, no, Peter, you're not a good Christian if you can forgive him seven times but rather 70 times seven. And no matter what you do to me, no matter how many times you do it to me, I ought to say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I was preaching in Atlanta, Georgia. And a lady came to me and she said, Brother Comfort, I used to run a laundromat downtown in Atlanta. And one afternoon, a man came in and he locked the door behind him. And he took out a pistol and he put the barrel to my head. And he said, lady, if you don't let me take liberty with your body, I'm going to blow your brains out. She said, I was raped. And she said, you know what my husband said? Why didn't you let him blow out your brains? Aren't you a Christian? I want to say that husband doesn't know anything about true love. Here's a story of true love. A black evangelist by the name of Benjamin Doobie was an evangelist in an area of a million blacks in South Africa. And he preached that the gospel of Christ can make a black man love a white man and a white man love a black man. But some of them got up in arms and said, we don't want to love white people. And if you keep preaching that, we're going to murder you. Well, one day, Benjamin Doobie had breakfast with his family. And he said, you know, I don't put much stock in dreams, but he said, I had a dream last night and I really believe that this dream is gonna come to pass, but we've gotta make a decision. We can abandon the gospel that we've been preaching and just go on living peaceably or else we can keep preaching this gospel, even if it jeopardizes our lives. They said, we don't have any choice in the matter. We're gonna keep preaching the gospel. So they did. One day, Benjamin Doobie was with his four children and they were on their way to an outdoor meeting. 10 black men stopped the car, dragged Doobie out of the car. The four children ran for their lives. The young man, Bononi, was 12 years old. He hid behind a dustbin watching them with their dad and they took a knife and they jammed him through with a knife until the blood flowed out of his body. He was dead. After they left, Benoni went out. He looked at his daddy and he was dead. And his Bible was saturated in his blood. He went home and told his mother what had happened. Benoni went up into his room with a broken heart about his daddy being murdered. And he opened his Bible to Luke 23, verse 34. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, the 10 men were apprehended. Seven were convicted as accomplices. They were sentenced to 10 months in prison. The other three were sentenced as the murderers and they were sentenced to 15 years. Well, after 10 months, one of the uh, men who was in prison got out. Grace Duby and her children were in a outdoor meeting. They were giving their testimonies. And all of a sudden, in walked that man that was part of the 10 that had murdered their daddy and her husband. And so the people recognized him and wondered, what is he going to do? At the invitation, Grace Duby after they gave their testimonies and sang, she asked people if they wanted to receive Christ to come forward. He slipped out of his seat, and as the people recognized him, they wondered, what in the world is he going to do? He walked to the front, stood right beside of Grace Duby, looked into her eyes and said, Grace Duby, I want, your Christ. They wondered how is she going to respond? How are the children going to respond? She wrapped her arms around his neck and she said, now you are my brother. And the four children began to sing, what a mighty God have we. Let us praise and glorify his name. True love is forgiving. All right, in closing, take your Bible. And turn, please, to John chapter 3 and verse 16. Number three, true love is sacrificial. Notice, please, the verse I preached on on Sunday morning. It says, for God so loved the world that he what? That he what? Gave. Gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hey folks, isn't that so different from the rock songs of the day if you can figure out the lyrics? Here's the way it goes. I love you, I want your body, I want your kisses, I want, I want. You listen to me, true love is not getting, true love is giving. God loved, He gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 1 and verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this evil world. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Ephesians 5 and verse 2, and walk in love as Christ had loved us and hath given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet, smiling savor. God loved, he gave his son. Jesus loved. He gave his last drop of blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 20 saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God hath enjoined unto us. Hebrews 9, 22, almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Hebrews 13 and verse 12, wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. In closing, there's an interesting prophetic verse in Isaiah 53 and verse five. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. Now listen carefully. There are five types of wounds known to medical science today. Are you aware that when they put Jesus Christ on the cross, he experienced every one of those five types of wounds that are known to medical science? Number one, there's what is called a contused wound. A contused wound is a wound made by a blunt instrument. In Matthew 27 and verse 30, they came to Jesus with a reed, a blunt instrument. They smote him on top of the cranium. It gashed his skull and in my mind, I can see the blood and the perspiration and the spittle as it made a pathway down his dusty cheeks. Contused wound. Number two, there is what is called a lacerated wound. And this is a wound made by a sharp, tearing instrument. Isaiah 50 and verse six, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Now in the day of Christ, there were two types of scourging. Number one, there was Jewish scourging. I mentioned that last night. In Jewish scourging, they would take a man's hands, tie them through a ring, take his legs, tie them through a ring so his body would be spread eagle. They would take the whip and beat him 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 13 times on the left side. Jewish law forbade any man to be beaten more than 40 stripes. So they always stopped at 39 to be within the law. But Jesus was not scourged by Jewish scourging when he was at Pilate's Hall. He was scourged by Roman scourging. Do you know what that entails? Much more cruel they would take his hands and tie them through a ring, and they would let his body dangle. And ladies and gentlemen, there were no rules about how many times you could scourge him. Many times it was over a hundred times. And they would take the leaded whip, that was a cat of nine tails, on the end of every strand of leather was a place for a three to four inch piece of bone, glass, or metal and every lash in the victim's body ripped nine strands of skin from his body. Roman law said that after he was beaten by Roman scourging, it was impossible to look at his body and tell how many lashes he received, why? Excuse me. After Roman scourging, his body looked like a piece of raw hamburger. And ladies and gentlemen, they took the leaded whip and they brought it one, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, 10, 20, 30, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, and only God knows how many more times until his body was riveted, emaciated flesh. Number one, there's contused wounds. Number two, there's lacerated wounds. Number three, there's penetrating wounds. Wounds made by a sharp pointed instrument. Now, many times we envision in our mind, the crown of thorns that Jesus had on his head was like the thorns we find on a rose bush, not true. Three times in the garden of Gethsemane, and pastors seen this more than I have, there's a replica of the crown of thorns. And those thorns could have been six to eight inches in length. They took this massive crown of thorns and they crushed it down upon his brow. They took the reed, they smote him on top of the reed, and it made an encircling of wounds about his holy brow. Penetrating wounds. Number four there is what is called perforated wounds. And this means to pierce through. They took these 10 inch spikes and they pounded them through the hands of Jesus. Actually, the heel of the hands separating the bones. Not a bone of him was broken. They lapped his feet over and they pounded the 10 inch spike through the heel of the foot, fulfilling Genesis 3.15 that the heel of Messiah would be bruised. Ladies and gentlemen, they took this mammoth 160 pound cross piece. Here he is, his body gushing blood, and they slammed it on his back. And now he's to go another half a mile to Golgotha's brow. Now, Roman law said this, don't let the victim fall beneath the cross. If a soldier lets a victim fall beneath the cross, he's punishable by the law. So I can see Jesus with his body gushing blood with a 160 pound cross piece on his back staggering toward Golgotha half a mile to go. And they went in the crowd and they got a black man, Simon the Cyrene, and they said, help him carry his cross. And so those are perforated wounds. And then Jesus Christ hung on the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, it was now a two hundred and 50 pound cross. They took this cross and they slammed it into the pit. And the Bible says his bones separated. His bones came out of his body and stared upon him. And number five, there was what was called an incised wound. And that is a wound made by a sharp edged instrument. Usually when a person was dying, they would come to the cross and they would jab a spear through his side to finish him off, to cause internal bleeding. But they came to Jesus and they found that he was dead already. So to show their hatred for the Son of God, they slammed that spear in his side and out of his side came blood and water. Physicians tell us that surrounding the heart is an organ called the pericardium. And they said that there is a tablespoon of water emitted that aids in the motion of the heart. Someone said, how in the world could they have seen a tablespoonful of water come out beside? We are told that under continuous torture, that could be increased up to 24 times the amount of water. SO THAT DAY AS THEY SLAMMED THE SPEAR IN HIS SIDE, ONE AND ONE-HALF CUPS FULL OF WATER COULD HAVE COME OUT OF THIS HOLY SIDE. AND LADIES AND GENTLEMEN, HE DID THAT FOR YOU. HE DID THAT FOR ME. I SAW ONE HANGING ON THE TREE IN AGONY AND BLOOD. He turned his loving eyes on me. As near his cross I stood, and can it be upon a tree, the Savior died for me. My heart is filled, my soul is thrilled, to think he died for me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Enclosing closing, a young man by the name of Andy was on his way home from work one night. And all of a sudden, Andy looked and he saw a bungalow on fire in a field. And Andy realized there were two boys in this bungalow. So not thinking about his own life, Andy ran into the bungalow, took a child, put them under each arm, covered them with his coat, and he brought them to safety without a scratch or a burn on their body. Andy's arms were burnt to a crisp all the way up to the elbows. The parents were burnt alive in the flames. A couple months passed and these two boys were up for adoption. Two people had applied for the adoption. One was the town mayor and the other was Andy. The judge looked at the Andy the day of awarding the children. And he said, now, Andy, I've got one question to ask you. And how you answer this question will determine who gets these children. He said, Andy, look at this man. He's a mayor. He's got a fine position. He's got a beautiful home. He's got land. He's got everything that these little hearts could desire. He said, Andy, I've checked your bank account. You're a poor working man. You don't have anything in the savings account. You couldn't do anything for these boys that this man could do. He said, now here's my question. What right do you have to these two little boys? Andy didn't say a word. You know what he did? He just held up his scarred hands. Ladies and gentlemen, you look at God tonight and you say, God, what right do you have to my life? All Jesus has to do is hold up his nail pierced hands. Let's bow our heads in prayer.